Okay, so if you will, make your way back. So I mentioned this earlier. If you came in late, uh, this is uh, Paul Hirsch. So Paul has been taking care of the Alessandria's home while they've been traveling the country. He's been watching dogs and chickens and cats, right? And fighting against coyotes. Yes. Yes. Okay. So he's been doing that all summer long because they needed someone to live there. And he's been attending Redstone. So if you attend Redstone long enough, I'm going to say, hey, we need to go have coffee. So we went and had coffee a couple weeks ago. And in the middle of this conversation... I don't remember what came up, but he said, yeah, I was on staff at Coral Ridge Presbyterian in Fort Lauderdale. And I was like, Dr. D. James Kennedy. I know that church. I've been there. That He was an amazing, amazing pastor. And the more we talked, I, I learned that he had a sermon that's really an introductory, it's raining, an introductory overview of the supernatural Christian worldview that exists in Second Peter. Next week, he's going to preach in Asheville, and then he's going back to Ohio. So this was our opportunity. So I asked the elders, and we decided that we wanted to hear you this morning. So thank you, first off, for being willing. And I'm going to pray for Paul, and then we'll jump into Second Peter. Father, I thank you uh, for the rain. Lord, I thank you for Paul. I thank you for him coming this summer and just being an encouragement to me when I met with him a few weeks ago and and Adam was with me. Lord, I walked out of that conversation just with a deeper hunger for the word of God than I had when I jumped into the conversation. Lord, I pray for Paul that you just speak through him. And as I pray for myself each week, I pray that his words, which will be many, Lord, will fall to the ground if they are not from you and only that which is of you will remain but it will forever change us as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you very much, Pastor Jerry. Uh, My wife, Leslie. We're not here simply because we found out someone's chickens needed to be looked after, but it gave us the opportunity to come and be near my son, my daughter-in-law, Joel and Angela Hurst, and my two namesake grandsons, Silas Paul and Jedediah Stone. Uh, They've gone out. You know, I saw a couple of kids walk up and then realize they didn't know where their parents were. I feel a little bit like that at this moment. (laughs) But we're very delighted to have been sharing in worship here with you. It's been a joy to us. It's enriched us and we are the better for it. So, let's pray. Father, bless us by your word. Open our hearts, thrill us with these great truths. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, Amen. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Who signs up for that?
Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 3. This will be the, be the text for today. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up, I'm waking up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That little caption that I read about the invitation for men wanted for a hazardous journey was a real notice. Ernest Shackleton, great explorer, Antarctic explorer of the early 1900s, put that out and lo and behold, he had thousands of men to choose from. He selected his crew and so began the third voyage to reach and go across Antarctica. The journey began in 1914. The ship, the Endeavour, eventually though, as they neared, not yet on the shelf of the continent, still navigating the ice flow and berg infested waters, the ship became trapped. And then it was crushed by the heaving ice and it sank in November 1915. The crew of the ship had abandoned it just weeks earlier and they were stranded on an ice floe with all of the provisions from the ship and all the dogs and sleds that they were going to use to cross Antarctica. That would have been the first time that had been done. For five months they drifted north to warmer water, to warmer weather. And gradually the flow that they were upon began to melt away. And they realized they had to abandon that. And it was determined their only hope was to make for a whaling island, Elephant Island, a couple of days sail from where they found themselves. And they did that. But that island was nowhere near shipping lanes. So Shackleton left with five men in one of the lifeboats to make an 800 mile journey 
to the South Georgia Island and there secure a ship to go back and rescue all of them. Shackleton was adamant that they take adequate ballast. These were stones to lay at the bottom of the boat to hold it steady and prevent it from capsizing in the watery chaos and the turmoil of the dreaded Drake Passage. That's where the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans collide. It's still famous today for very terrible seas. He had to argue and pull rank in order to have the ballast he wanted board their little lifeboat. He knew it would save their lives. Treacherous waves abounded, and one, known as the Cape Horn Roller, came in. Shackleton thought it was the clearing in the sky. And as they got closer, they realized it was the crest of a wave over 100 feet high. And it threw their little boat around like a cork. But those heavy stones laying in the bottom of that boat were the stones of their salvation. These scriptures are our stones. Christ is the rock of our salvation and we are going to add this morning some ballast, some stones to our lives just as Peter did for his audience. He wrote this epistle to give them comfort and to strengthen their, strengthen their minds against the coming onslaught of false teachers. Second Peter is a book about the book. It is the most reviled book of the New Testament, the most criticized, the most despised, because it is full of references to past miraculous events which are inconvenient. It is, or in this book, this epistle, are a catalog of the supernatural events rendered by the hand of God and it calls us to be reminded of the supernatural nature of our world and our need to be thoroughly familiar with the scripture and a supernatural world view, a supernatural biblical worldview. The scriptures are the very words of God voluntarily given to man and what you know matters. Well, why did Peter write to them with such intensity? and with such reaching back into the Old Testament for all of these stories. Remember, false teachers were present, have been present throughout all of the New Testament, as they were and as there were false prophets throughout all of the Old Testament period. And here in this book, there are a number of those heresies that are inferred and are considered coming, the coming false teachings that are mentioned even also in other books, and they are part of Peter's warning. He warned of those who would come representing themselves as having been with Jesus, and that Jesus also said these words, and they would give them things that Jesus had never said. He warned of destructive heresies of those who would endorse living immoral lives. He warned of legalists, and he warned of those who were called antinomians, those against the law. There is no law. There is no final judgment, nothing has changed, just live as you want, everything's going to be good. But they also had destructive, and in some translations, damnable heresies. They denied the incarn incarnation, they would deny the deity of Christ, they would deny his death and the resurrection, they would deny the atonement, and they would deny and replace the consistent message of scripture to pursue holy lives. 
They are the atheists of today. There is no God or there's any God. They are the secular elites, dare I say, the woke progressives. The world goes on just as it always had. That's a philosophy of today called naturalism. There is no perversion that is taboo. There are no judgments. There is no moral code by which all of us are called to live to, and that's humanism. There are no divinely inspired scriptures to tell us exactly who God Almighty is and who is the Son and who is the Spirit, modernists. They are the critics who dismiss everything. Some of the most famous theologians of our day are men who discount any of, any of the history or the supernatural nature of our scriptures. One of them breaks my heart. He's an Irishman. It just saddens me that someone from the sod would deny. But he said something like this. Oh, there may have been a man who walked the shores of the Sea of Galilee, who went about preaching and doing good. They, his name may have been Jesus, but we can't tell for sure. And that man, Dominic Crossan, is one of the leading voices of the scriptures of theology in our world today. There are modern evangelicals who believe some of the Bible, even, but eh, not all of it. It's a little hard to understand. It's a little far-fetched. Who can believe this happened? Who can take that as fact? In fact, the Bible, to the critics and to those who hate religion and to those who hate Christianity in particular, it's utterly ridiculous. And those who would believe it and follow it are even more ridiculous. And they scoff and come scoffing. Here's a catchphrase for today. The rally cry is to be authentic. Do whatever your heart desires. That gives you the right to just discount anything of uh, history, anything of the evidence for God throughout history, anything of the testimony that God has given among men in his written word of the way of salvation from a sinner who is hostile to God to one who has peace with God, that is through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Peter gives his readers reminders. Reminders meant to waken them up, stir up their hearts. It's actually a word that's pretty violent. Shake somebody awake for them to remember things they already knew so that they would be focused upon those certain realities. And he gave them, Peter gave those readers, great stones of truth in order to provide them ballast, to keep them steady against the wicked false teachers that would come. They would come espousing anything that they could come up with to detach believers from the foundation of the revelation of God our scriptures. We'll look at just three of those great stones of ballast. You'll notice twice, chapter 2 and once in chapter 3, reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis records the Sodom event, references it numerous times. Jesus cites it, Paul mentions it, 
The epistle of Jude refers to it. And in fact, refers to it in such a way that even the outline or the ruins of those uh, cities is still evident. They could still see them. Josephus, a historian from the first century, not a believer, uh, a priest, a Jewish priest, but he wrote histories. He says traces of that divine fire are yet known, and you can, you can see the shadow of those five cities. Yet, for years, critics have cited it as a myth because there was no evidence of anywhere that there was Sodom and Gomorrah down in that area. It just wasn't there. It was a myth made up to, to frighten people, to scare them into some form of religious agreement and conformity. There was no Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain as the Bible had mentioned. And therefore the Bible, in that regard, it's just myth. And if that's a myth, then it must all be a myth. But interesting, the evidence has been dug up. Beginning in 1973, the five cities were discovered. Much of what has been discovered comes to us only in the last 20 years. And the preponderance of evidence with regard to the Torah story of Sodom and Gomorrah is overwhelming. The Bible refers to the metropolis of five cities in that Dead Sea area, just to the east of the Dead Sea. And what they have discovered is five cities. They're named in Genesis, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Zoar. And archaeological evidence from each of the sites has rendered those names. The Bible refers to a conquest in that area by the Mesopotamians, and the artifacts found in that Dead Sea area show Mesopotamian influence. It describes that area as being a metropolis with a thriving population. And the enormous number of burial sites, they have a special way to bury people, attested to a great population in one cemetery, 500,000 alone. And it's estimated there were over 3 million people buried. Genesis 13 tells us Lot chose this land because him and Abraham were having conflict. Lot's men, Abraham's men, all of their flocks, they got so large and there was competition. And so Abraham took Lot. They stood on a high hill and said, he said to Lot, choose where you want to go. And Lot looked out and he saw the land to the east and described it this way. It was well watered like the garden of the Lord. And like the land of Egypt and other Jewish writings also cite and recognize how verdant and lush this area was. Well, the digs have uncovered great diversity of agricultural products and evidence of arable land, extremely arable land. But the Bible also attributes the destruction of those cities to a fiery storm that rained down from above. Oh, now we're in trouble. Now we're in trouble from the critics. Something supernatural is going to happen. Well, what has been discovered in the ruins of this area are thick layers of burnt material covering the remains of the cities in that area, particularly Sodom and Gomorrah. Found were vast numbers of golf ball-sized sulfur pellets, like it had hailed 
but it never went away. You know how it hails every once in a while and you see everything covered by these little salty, icy rocks. Yeah, but then within an hour, they're all gone. Not here. Thousands of years. Two thousands of years. Four thousands of years. Five thousand years. The sulfur pellets were tested and they consist of 98% pure sulfur and a trace of magnesium. And these brimstone balls would have burned extremely hot and they have tested them and they literally explode in flame. Fireballs raining down from heaven, destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, there exists not a single piece of archaeological discovery that contradicts what the Bible has to say in its record. Oh, there's lots of things we haven't found. We haven't found, we haven't found Noah's Ark for sure. But just because we haven't found it doesn't mean it's not out there. Well, yes. <laughs> and I've read many of those books. In fact, when I came to faith as a 19-year-old, I was an incredible skeptic. The Bible can't be true because I had grown up in a society, in a culture, at a school, an elementary school that ridiculed the Bible. Even though I grew up going to Sunday school, I just had a hard time. But one of the books that brought me to faith, Discovery of Noah's Ark. There is ample proof for the certain reality and of many other things regarding that ark find. Stone number one. The second attestable aspect that we come to that Peter cites with his people is in fact the flood. But one of the strongest evidences for a global flood, which annihilated all the people on earth except for Noah and his family, has been and is the ubiquitous presence of flood legends and lore of various people groups from all around the world. The stories are strikingly similar. There might be some local geography or cultural aspects woven in, but they all tell the same story, over 200. They are originally, or were originally, reported by missionaries or anthropologists, ethnologists. And they all contain these following elements. There was a catastrophe of a flood, not something else, a flood, 95% of them. There was a global flood, that it was everywhere, known to at least those people, 95% of them. There was a favored family that was saved. 88% of the witnesses. There is a rainbow mentioned in 75% of these 200 plus stories. The survival of that favored family was due to a boat, 70%. Animals were also saved, almost 70%. The flood was due to wickedness in humanity, 65%. There was preaching and a forewarning 65%. And the survivors landed in their boat on a mountain. 
all citing and referencing an event that the scriptures present to us. How did they get all around the world as has been discovered? Well, after the flood, Noah and his family went out, they repopulated the earth and the story of what happened went with everybody and it went with everybody wherever they went. And it gradually was corrupted or weakened or whatever in some locations, but the story remains the same. So here it is, here's the story. Once there was a worldwide flood sent by God to judge the wickedness of men. But there was one favored family which was forewarned of the coming flood and they built a boat on which they survived the flood along with all of the animals that they took in. When the flood ended, their boat landed on a high mountain from which they descended and repopulated the whole earth. Stone, number two. <coughs> Third, numerous references in this book about prophecy. Things spoken of from old, things uttered by prophets and apostles that should capture our imagination and give us a great firm ballast in the keel of our faith. Bible scholar Wilbur Smith compared the prophecies of Bible with other historic books, historic religious books, stating that the Bible is the only volume ever produced among men or a group of men in which is found a large body of prophecies relating to individual nations, to Israel, to all the peoples of the earth, to certain cities, and the coming one who was to be Messiah. He says, thus the Bible lays out its claim for inspiration in such a way that it can either be substantiated or disproved. Biblical prophecy is all by itself unique and powerful. No other religious writings contain any such thing, never mind the over 1,800, 1,800, now that's Old Testament and New Testament included, very few of which remain to be fulfilled. Not Buddha, among all his writings, not Muhammad, not Confucius, not Laos, uh, not Lao Tse, none of these contain anything of prophecy, and yet the Bible does. Here are just eight Old Testament prophecies related to the Messiah. Now, I'm going to give dates. All of these dates by critics are just dismissed, but here's, here's something they can't deal with. The thing is, the Old Testament was complete, finished, done, at least by... 200 BC. How do we know that? Well, it was all translated into Greek at that time. So even if the critics don't want to allow for the internal evidence for biblical dating, they're still stuck with a 200-year gap in which eight prophecies or more. Here's the eight. 700 BC, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Not just Bethlehem. There were two Bethlehems, the little Bethlehem. 500 BC, the Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. 1000 BC, the Messiah would be betrayed by a friend. 500 BC again, Messiah would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. 
in that same book, Zechariah, it's noted 500 BC, the money for which the Messiah would be sold would be thrown into the potter's room in the house of God. 700 years BC, Isaiah, Messiah would be born of a virgin. Thousand years BC, Messiah would be executed by crucifixion, by having his hands and feet pierced, a form of execution that did not exist until even hundreds of years later from that time, never mind who would be the one to have his hands and feet pierced. A thousand years B.C., Messiah is to be given vinegar to quench his thirst. Peter Stoner was chairman of the mathematics and astronomy departments at the Pasadena City College. And he, among many others, calculated the mathematical possibilities of a prophetic fulfillment in one person. And after examining only eight prophecies, that was his number, I don't know which ones he used, it was conservatively estimated that the chance of one man fulfilling all eight prophecies was one in 10 to the power of 17. Now, for some of us, that I forget what that means. <laughs> it's 10 to the power of 17 is 10 with 17 zeros showing that number. And he illustrated, well, how large is that? How many is that? Well, take 10 to the power of 17 silver dollars and lay them on the face of the state of Texas, and they would cover the state, the entire state, two feet deep in silver dollars. Billions, trillions. But then blindfold a man and tell him he can travel as far as he wishes, go wherever he wants, but somewhere he must stop, stoop, and pick up one silver dollar and say, this is it, this is the right one. Having it been marked previously. So what chance would he have of getting the right one? Well, just the same chance that the prophets had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man. But of course, there are many more than eight prophecies. In another calculation, he used 48 prophecies to arrive at the incredible number of 10 to the power of 157 which mathematicians have said is beyond a possibility. But there are over 300 messianic prophecies, things stated in our Old Testament scriptures, the Old Covenant word, the First Testament, that look ahead 400, 500, 600, 7, 8, 9, a thousand years back to the days of Genesis chapter 3, a seed will come. Peter's reference, references to prophets and prophecy was a call to attention to the supernatural foundation of the word of God, to give his hearers confidence not to fall into the trap of the scorner who wished to separate them from the veracity, the truth, and the power, the supernatural origin of the Word of God, their scriptures, their Bible, 
that thing that we carry around and oh, it gives us comfort and it's wonderful to read the 23rd Psalm and there are some beautiful promises that we all relate to, but we have eternal truth. Stones. This indisputable prophetic witness should be enough to silence any such rejection, not only of other supernatural events in our scripture, but of the very word of God itself. Stone number three. In the last days, mockers will come mocking. And we know mockers. In the fourth grade, I had a teacher who mocked the story of Noah. I graduated from a Bible college with undergraduate degrees went to a public university, and in every class, whether it was philosophy or psychology, the development of the child, they mocked the testimony of Scripture. Not just speaking what they believed, but speaking what they believed against what they knew was the truth that they were facing it, they were up against. But scoffers aren't necessarily those who brazenly come and attack. Peter speaks of those people that these false teachers will be within. They'll come from within. Just as there is in, in, in our church worldwide, mockers and scoffers. But they can be scientists, narrow-minded and anti-supernatural. They can be teachers of science, history, health, anything that's without a biblical worldview. It's the counsel of the ungodly. It's a soup in which we all live is the counsel of the ungodly. And our weekly worship is, is that infusion that we have of the word of God that enables us to worship the living and true God. That's why we come. That's why we're called church. Ecclesia. And there's a cornerstone. But mockers can be religious people or theologians or pastors. Anyone who is more influenced by so-called modern science and modernism than by the inerrant word of God. And they can be anyone who just simply cannot believe the narratives of the Old Testament or the testimony of the New Testament. Oh, we believe some things. We hope it's to be true. We desire it's to be true. We may even profess a faith in Jesus because it's wonderful to do, but the rest of the word of God is unfathomable to me and therefore unsearched, unused. Spurgeon once said, the broken, worn down, wore out Bible usually belongs to a person who is not. Peter writes these things to stir up their memories. Calvin had said that even the godly who have some degree of biblical learning will become dim and mentally rusty if they do not receive constant reminders. Peter, though, speaks of another stone. The greatest supernatural event of all time is simply this. The Word became flesh. 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. He identifies the Lord in chapter 1, verse 1. There's a little Greek grammar trick going on in there that automatically and powerfully addresses the fact that God and Jesus are one. It's not just a wonderful flowery phrase. We have a faith of the same kind as ours. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's not, we're speaking to God, we thank him, and we're speaking to our Savior, and we're speaking to Jesus. It's all one. They're shackled together by the grammar. Peter's confession. When the Lord, when he said, uh, the Lord asked him, whom do men say I am? And finally Peter said, thou art the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus turned back to him and said, Petros, you are, that, that confession is now Petra, play on words. That is the rock. Peter, that confession, those words, what you have just said is the rock upon which all reality stands. And Jesus, who is the rock of our salvation, he is the rock from which the living water flows that Moses in the wilderness struck twice with his staff so that water would come out. He is, Jesus is the rock that was carved from the mountain without hands that crushes all of the gold and silver and, and everything else that was fashioned in order to make idols. He is the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone using the imagery of a building, citing that the church is a building and Christ is that cornerstone by which everything is measured. And guess what? We are living stones. We are living stones if we have made that confession of thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Have you made that confession? Do you know this Jesus of whom all of these scriptures supernaturally, not just portend, supernaturally predicted and prophesied. He is the one coming. Do you know how to hold your word and understand this is not just a linear history where we've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and they all say different things and the story moves on and, and it's hard to understand. And I like the story about David and Goliath and we'll move on from there. And Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, it's great imagery. Them bones, them bones, them. This is God's word from God's mind communicated to us and put into our hands so that we have a faithful witness by which we can take our darkened minds, have them renewed, and by the Holy Spirit taking the word of God, sealing it into the hearts of people, changing hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. 
and we know how to defend our faith. Peter spoke earlier in the first letter he wrote, be ready always to give an answer to every man who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. One of the reasons I have hope is I can look at the Old Testament and I can refute scoffers and say, you don't know what you're talking about. Have you ever heard the Bible's full of errors? If you do, ask them to show you one. But then, with hearts full of kindness and love toward them, say, let me tell you something about this ancient text. Let me show you about Sodom and Gomorrah and modern-day archaeology. Let me tell you about the idea of a worldwide flood is a worldwide story. Let me tell you about Jesus. The word God become flesh. That for hundreds of years before he ever came into flesh was heralded, foretold, prophesied because this great work of God was necessary. It was necessary in order for the word to become flesh and dwell among us in order that one could be the substitute for us all to bear our sin, to be the one that he was nailed, his hands and his feet nailed to that cross. After all of the public humiliation and the scourging and the crown of thorns and the mocking, to then when even the very centurion, truly, this was the Son of God. Is he yours? Heavenly Father, seal to our hearts these things. Open our minds to understand. Give us a hunger for great truth. Let us have these great stones of ballast in our own hearts and minds. May it be that we too rest on the Petra, the confession, and that Jesus is our Ebenezer, our rock, our stone of deliverance. To his name be praised. Amen.